listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. Imagine this. You graduate from business school essentially broke. Sound familiar? All your friends have their perfect jobs lined up right out of school, and instead, you chose to leverage the last of your student line of credit and borrow money from your parents to start a new thing. Because why not? You fake it till you make it and successfully negotiate a licensing deal against all odds, beating out a much more established competitor. You then invest the last of your savings to attend the industry conference where you plan to release your big idea to the world. And guess what? While you're there, you find out that the idea you thought was so exciting and new has already been done years earlier and failed miserably. This is Peter Mahalik's founding story of Adblock Media, today's leading chairlift advertising solution. Peter successfully translated his passion for snowboarding into a successful business. And in this episode, we talk about how to get useful feedback and tweak your losing idea into a winning one, which by the way, he started doing at that exact same conference that he failed at, how to write a business plan that you'll actually use and do it in a single day, how to negotiate as the underdog and get your very first sale. This episode is a masterclass for first time entrepreneurs. Get your notebook, get your pen. You don't want to miss a minute of this episode. All right. Today I'm here with Pete Mahalik, previously from Adblock, who's going to tell us the story of getting his first company started and through to acquisition. Excited to have you here. Thanks. Excited to be here. I want to hear a little bit about how and where you grew up. I'm trying to dig a little bit just to see where the entrepreneurial inklings may have started. So where did you grow up? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great... I guess, question and starting point. So I was actually born in Poland. So I grew up for about six years in Europe and I immigrated here with my family when I was six and then I moved around a lot. I initially grew up in North York and then grew up in Richmond Hill where my family, you know, did the Canadian American dream and bought a house. And, uh, you know, from there went to school at University of Western Ontario. And yeah, that was, that was kind of the path that I was on. But to dive deeper into the question you just posed, you know, it's interesting because I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. So growing up, I always thought that I would become an engineer. I was very creative and I loved to build things. And I thought that I would follow in the footsteps of my father, who was actually a mechanical engineer. Failing that, it would probably be me going into finance if it was something business related. Uh, I was great with numbers, very gifted in mathematics and financial analysis. Just thought that was my calling, that was my path. And I think over the course of my uh, educational career, what I really realized is that I'm a very personable and social guy and I thrive on other people's energies and I love to bring people together. And I think that's when I got the inkling and the thought that perhaps finance and engineering and everything that I thought I was going towards wasn't really meant for me. And I was meant to bring people together and bring ideas together and get them to the next stage, the next level. So your dad was a, an engineer. Was he trained in, was he trained in Poland? Or Correct. Was he trained? Yep. He was educated in Poland. Got it. And then what caused them to come here? You know, it was the classic pursuit of the American Canadian dream. You know, at the time this was, uh, you know, Poland was just getting out of that Soviet era, out of communism. I think unemployment rates were still very, very high. Uh, it was a hard, it was very difficult for a trained engineer to apply his education and 
kickstart his career and what he studied. My dad was working like two to three jobs at the same time. Yeah, it was a tough time. So a bunch of his friends actually did the same thing and they, they flew out, they came to Canada, they came to Toronto and sent back these ideas and notices of, hey, it's better here. You know, the, the work and employment opportunity is a lot better here. So he took a huge risk and packed up and came out and spent a year away from my mother and, and the family. And shortly after, you know, we followed him and we came over and set up our new life. Interesting. It's like, I wouldn't think of my family as entrepreneurial, but when you look back to people who have immigrated, who leave a country that they're comfortable in, who leave their network of people, come over, boat, plane, whatever, and start fresh, that's pretty entrepreneurial. Definitely. And now thinking back to those moments, taking that risk for my father was massive. Talking about uh, leaps of faith. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and he he didn't know the language. You know, he was coming here with one suitcase, which was actually entirely filled with booze for his buddies as a present. But he made it work. He made it work. And within a year, you know, we, we came and followed suit. Cool. Cool. So it was, you went to Western, thought you might do the engineering thing following your dad's footsteps. When did you first realize that there might be entrepreneurial inklings? Was it at Ivy? Was it before Ivy? It was definitely before Ivy because all throughout my high school career, I would play around a little in these various different businesses. I had like a lawn mowing business. I had a detailing business. You know, these classic things that kids try and experiment with, get their first foot through that entrepreneurial experience. Um, So that was fun. I learned a lot through that. But really coming into Ivy, I had a big wake up call. I'm still thinking at this point that, yeah, I'm going to be a banker, you know, or, or something to do in finance. And I realized how different I was and how different my personality was. And I didn't fit into that specific mold, becoming a banker or consultant. And truthfully, I was lost. My colleagues were getting internships with big consulting firms, with big banking firms. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. That's not me. And things uh, really started looking up for me when I partnered up with an entrepreneur that specialized in the real estate sector. In the summer, and this was very late, you know, internships were committed to, and I got my job and I got employment probably in July, June, July. So it's like is, you're into, you're well into summer already. Well into summer, still haven't figured anything out, getting a little nervous. And uh, yeah, I committed to do an internship with, uh, with Peter Kobayashi. He was a great mentor of mine who was actually a partner of mine at Adblock. We'll get to that story shortly. But he really opened up my eyes into what could be done. I mean, on the entrepreneurial scale. How did you find him? Great question. So through the Ivy Network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He actually recruited from within. He was an MBA grad. He loved to recruit at Ivy and saw posting and he needed a specific project to be executed and filled. So we connected. So he posted it on his own company website or through? No, through Ivy. Yeah. Through the Ivy posting job job board. Ivy alumni being loyal to the Ivy Network. Exactly. Nice. Nice. So he gave you a shot. How was that summer experience? Awesome. You know, he was a one-man shop. You know, it was interesting to see that because up until that point, I was really thinking, oh man, you got to join this big company and learn from all these different people. And yet here was an awesome opportunity to be one-on-one with somebody, a very brilliant man and get into his mind and truly, you know, understand the way a business works, a business ticks. So I saw this as a great learning experience and good opportunity. Cool. So he gave you your first shot got a bunch of stuff in your toolkit. You you go back to do fourth year. Correct. 
where the heck did the idea for Adblock come from? Because if I'm not, you did it right after graduation, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So interesting that you say that because all throughout, as I said, throughout high school, I kind of had a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit in me. And at this point, I wasn't yet committed into starting this business. Uh, I was playing around with a number of different courses. Most of the courses in HBA2 that I took were marketing, entrepreneurial focused, things that I was passionate and interested in. So again, I deviated heavily away from that finance, the typical mathematics, finance, accounting direction that I thought I was going to head in. The To answer your question, the idea for Adblock itself, that actually emerged well before when I was in high school and I was snowboarding in Ontario and it was negative 20 degrees at Mount St. Louis Moonstone. And I was sitting there on a chair by myself looking dead straight at what was in front of me, which is a safety bar. Spending about Mount St. Louis, it's a short lift, but spending about four minutes on the chairlift thinking to myself, why aren't they advertising to me right now? Why isn't there an advertising message here? I mean, this is the perfect audience to try and capture. And you're locked in. I'm locked in. There's no off button. I can't jump from the lift. I'm inches away from potentially this, this medium that could promote something to me. Here's a missed opportunity that somebody should jump on. This is also 2006? Yes. This is probably 2006, 2007, somewhere around that time frame. Before Absolutely. people in, uh, despite the fact that it's 20 below, are going to whip off their gloves and dig through their jacket to find their cell phones. Correct. So long before the, you know, social media aspect, internet of things, you know, this is, this is old school. Literally nothing to do but stare. Uh, cool. So th- this, you, you had this idea. Why didn't but you sat on it for a year. So why didn't you do anything about it back then? Well, sorry. No, this is, I got to think back now. No, this is well before because high school was 2003, 2002, 2003. So that's my mistake. Um, we graduated university in 2008. I didn't jump on it at the time, truthfully, because I didn't think that was my path. I knew that there was an opportunity. I didn't have the confidence to pursue this yet. I think to your point, uh, I needed little more experience, a little more knowledge, a little more skill set in my toolkit. But then when I was in university, when I graduated, Mr. Kobayashi called me up and he's like, what are you doing for full-time employment? I really enjoyed working with you. And Adblock was obviously at the back of my mind. I was thinking I'd really like to start this business, but financing is going to be tough. I got a lot of bills to pay. I just got out of school. You know, how am I going to cover those, uh, the tuition debt? And uh, the conversation went something like this. Why don't you come work for me in real estate and I'll teach you the trade. But I know you're very entrepreneurial because we've spoken about this at length over many, many beers last summer. If you come up with any ideas, pitch them to me. Perhaps we could start a business together on the side. Now I'm thinking, wait a second. This is a nice gray haired wise guy that potentially just wrote my check you know, to do something with him. I got pretty excited. Great, an industry that I'm not really particularly interested in, but again, I can learn a thing or two in in real estate. And number two, I got this mentor that's potentially willing to partner with me on something. So I signed on board, started working with him. And within the first two to three weeks of us working together, I told him about Adblock. And he kind of looked at me and said, huh, interesting. And he went back and probably did his soul searching. And then I think this was on a Friday. And then on the Monday or Tuesday, when he walked into the office, he pulled me aside and he goes, have you actually mapped this out? I'm like, 
do you know what the opportunity looks like? I go, yeah, a little bit, but not so much. And we sat there at the boardroom table for about six hours and we did what we call the back of the napkin analysis. And it's brilliant because we did it on, on two sheets of white paper, him and I doing our own analysis back and forth, just identifying, you know, poking holes, seeing what the market's like, seeing whether this is a real opportunity that we can generate some, some money from. And after the six hours, we looked at each other and we're like, yep, this is something that can make us some cash. So this was, uh, what was it exactly? Was it like a combination of, you know, who's the customer? What's the pain? What's the problem? Was it, you know, how big's the market? Was it, what did you guys talk about for those few hours? Yeah, it's a great question. So we definitely identified that there's a missed opportunity here for the same reasons that I identified when I was on that chairlift. I mean, there's this ability to, to throw an ad here and nobody's doing it. So our assumption is, well, let's take advantage of that. I mean, people are selling advertising everywhere. Why can't we do this? The analysis was really centered around what is, how big is the market and what would we need to capture in order to make this a viable business in order to generate X amount of millions. And we did it on a very simple basis. And funny thing is, I actually did a little bit of research on this very early on that I shared with him. So I had all the stats applicable to the local ski area, which is Blue Mountain. And I understood exactly how many carriers they had. I, I understood how many units would need to out, be outfitted on a chairlift. I also had preliminary conversations with a product that I already identified, which was Adblock. So I identified this to be a good product. Instead of reinventing the wheel and making our own, we could license this product from this guy that designed it and owned it out in New Zealand. And uh, you know, we were trying to come up with what will it cost us to outfit a chairlift and how much revenue can we generate? So we did some quick research online to see, you know, what an average poster board is sold, you know, in a washroom. And we compared the audience and the environment of a washroom to our audience and our environment, thinking that, you know, we could probably sell it for a premium given that skiers are a lot wealthier. They're much more premium audience than the traditional, uh, you know, bar, restaurant, washroom patron. Plus you're in a spectacular environment doing something you love. You're not going to the washroom, you know, and doing right. your business. Right. So there's that aspect as well. So six hours. I mean, that's, uh, it's interesting because I feel that sometimes people can get caught up in overdoing it. Right. Like you didn't, it sounds like you had done some homework before. So that six hours wasn't the first time that you sat down to think through how big the market was. You'd done some homework. Correct. At the same time, you just didn't let it, you didn't let yourself get buried in like buckets of market research and I need to do more homework and more homework and more homework. It sounds like you guys sat in the room and decided after six hours, like there's something here. Yeah. And, and truly the, that point, that pivotal point was when we determined what our net revenue would be on a per chairlift basis. And based on the numbers that I've collected from the blue mountain example, it was 60 grand. So a year we could generate 60 grand off one chairlift we were to outfit it with our product, everything paid for. So product covered, commissions paid, you know, all sorts of other analysis that we factored into it, 60 grand net. And when you extrapolate that based on some research that we did across X amount of hundreds of chairlifts just in Canada, you know, you had a pretty viable business. So at that point we looked at it and we said, wow, okay, well, there's something definitely here. Yeah. So I think we'll get into this a little bit more later, but again, back to effectuation, what you know, who you are, who you know. Mm -hmm. 
you worked with this guy that you already had a previous relationship with. So he knew that you weren't, you knew that you were somebody who's going to work hard because you worked with them the, the summer before. So you had somebody willing to help you out, fund it actually, if you brought them a good enough idea. Skiing or snowboarding. Did you just randomly decide that you wanted to do something in the, in the industry? Yeah, no, and it's a very good point. Uh, skiing and snowboarding has always been a huge passion of mine. I mean, it's it's the reason why I took a serious stab at this opportunity and identified it in the first place. I mean, I was sitting on a chairlift and I looked around and said, hey, this is a missed opportunity. I understood that industry well. I understood the market. I've skied in many parts of Canada and, and the States at the time, a little bit in Europe. So... I understood the way that ski areas operate, understood the audience extremely well. You were the audience. I was the audience. I knew what made the audience tick, what brands would be attracted to that audience. You know, and it's such a diverse audience set, right? I mean, you have, you could hyper-target in so many different segments, young guys, you know, the, the old boomers that are very wealthy and affluent families, mothers with their kids. So, you know, it was a diverse audience set. But yeah, to your point, I had a good understanding of the market. I mean, it was a passion of mine. I loved it. I wanted to get involved in this business and pursue it because I was so fired up and excited about the market and the industry. Yeah. I don't know if you're public, but I mean, checking out your Instagram, we've been friends for a while, but reading, looking through your Instagram, it's like, I don't know, a third of them are ski picks, right? Of course. At Pow Pete. Pow I mean, Pete. That's, yeah. uh, you know, that's my alias that was coined many, many years ago. And my friends are, you are Pow Pete. I try and chase the powder in the big mountains every winter. So surprise, Pete starts a business in the snowboarding skiing space. Okay, cool. So sometimes we talk about founders of companies having a call it a hypothesis or like a strong opinion about things that they know to be true or things that will be true. Was that, was there anything like that for Adblock things where you were like, you know, we know that in the future there's this trend that we just like so strongly believe to be true. Was there anything that like at a gut level you just like knew? Yeah. So one of the things we felt as if, you know, we, we had good grounds to believe in this and just to take a step back, the, the business model that we were working off of and that we were going to develop was without a chairlift and without skiers, there was no business. We had a product that we've identified was potentially a really, really good fit. We didn't have the product yet. There, there's a whole story around that and securing the distribution rights for, for North America for that. But we had an idea of a product that we wanted to bring to market here in Canada and, and the U.S. And we needed skiers. And the business model that we were working off of was that we were going to install the product on safety bars for free. We were going to cover the full CapEx, the the installation, the investment. That will be entirely on us. But as a result, we'll be able to sell advertising space and essentially license the safety bars from the Skiria, sell the ad space, and give a small kickback back to the Skiria. So our whole business model was based on the notion that I'm going to use your safety bars, generate revenue, and give you a ref share give you a kickback. Now, in our eyes and in our opinion in that moment, who the hell wouldn't go for that? Yeah, no brainer. No that, brainer. That was, uh, as we say, that was plan A. That was plan A. No brainer. It's sitting there idle right now. You're making no money from it. Why not? Exactly. Why not monetize that asset? We have a fantastic product. Uh, we're going to get it installed. We're going to go sell a ton of advertising. We're going to give you kickback. Makes sense. So our initial pitch and our initial approach, you know, what we actually coined this was make hundreds of thousands of dollars without lifting a finger or spending a dime. And think about that. That would resonate with anyone. Yeah. It reminds me of the new uh, 
couple of buddies who are in sales at these new restaurant delivery companies. Like I think about in, at least in Toronto, there's, there's a bunch of them now, Uber Eats, but Ritual is one that's really growing quickly. And God, to be a salesperson for some of those early days, like literally I, you do nothing. We have this network. We're going to get people to order. They just pick it up. You literally set up a shelf and do nothing. To be fair, there's probably a lot more to it than that. But yeah, sounds beautiful. Sounds yeah. easy. Yeah. Sounds easy. Sounds like a great pitch. Sounds like a great pitch. I'm in. Uh, so talk about, to use our, our terms, analogs and antilogs. So analogs, things that, w- so you've got this couple pieces of paper business plan. You've done your homework. You know the market. You've got a guy willing to support you. You've actually had preliminary conversations. You've got your pitch nailed down. Was there anything out there that you saw that you liked that you wanted to sort of mirror some of it after? Uh, And it could be in adjacent, totally different industries. Mm -hmm. You had already mentioned like bathroom advertisements. And inversely, or the other hand, is there anything that you saw that you didn't like? You know, other, again, could be similar businesses in that industry, someone that had done it in a different place that really screwed it up or other things that you picked up in the advertising world that you were like, Ooh, never going to do that. So good things you wanted to copy, bad things you wanted to stay away from. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the bad things that we want to stay away from, I mean, a big part of it really rested on the product. The product was everything to us. And you got to remember that me walking into this idea, I'm like, I'm going to design my own dad's an engineer. Let's put together this product, build it from scratch, build it from scratch. Now, the reality was, you know, you you go and consult your good old uncle Google and Google spits out some good feedback. And some of the feedback I got was, wow, there's some products out there that already exist. Really two products that I found during my research. One of them was a company called SkiLift Media that was based out of Banff in Canada. And they had a very rudimentary tube-like structure that they would wrap around the safety bar. I don't know how I got my hands on one, but I convinced the guy to send me a sample and he did. And when I saw this thing, I was not impressed. Pause for a second. Cause typically I was a student entrepreneur too. And that first time when you Google something and you find the thing, often people are like, that's it. That's it. Someone's already done it. It's a Canadian company who's literally doing the thing that you wanted to map out. You didn't drop it there. Yeah. Great question. No. And at the time, and again, we'll get to this later, but at the time, my focus, and this was a narrow focus and narrow way of thinking through this business, but I believe that I wanted to be the guy for Ontario. I only cared about a few skiers in Ontario. I thought my analysis would be like, yeah, I could probably make uh, you know half a million dollars off this business just in Ontario. That's a good little business. Got it. So yeah. these, you weren't deterred because no one was doing it in Ontario. Correct. The fact that someone was doing it seemingly okay with a bad product out west then that was an opportunity actually yeah and truthfully at the time i was like well let me take a look at this product because if it's good perhaps i could just use it in ontario and this could be something that i could replicate in this market and away we go i got a business cool so you keep going you saw there was the one product that yeah so the one product that was sent over to me as a sample uh horrible really very bad i mean it's it's i was not impressed at all but you know, continue doing the research. And there was a product that seemed really, really sharp. It was, it was very sexy. It seemed like it had a sleek design, you know, website collateral, anything that I could find on it. It seemed really, really good. It was product out in New Zealand, other side of the world, you know, called Adblock, horrible name, but regardless, it was called Adblock. And I reached out to the owner 
And at the time, the the company that essentially owned the license or owned the distributorship for the product, it's called Alpine Media Limited. Good old Grant Metzen, we still call him to this day, the mad scientist who came up with the product and with the design. And we had a number of discussions back and forth. So you're calling New Zealand at this point? Correct. Back I mean, forth. first emailing, you know, so this is my first you know, take, and I'm still in school, right? I'm gathering some research, trying to see whether this is viable. And so, yeah, so I'm punching out emails. I'm trying to work with this, you know, much older, much more experienced gentleman on the other side of the world and trying to see, you know, whether he'll sell me his product. So it was an interesting uh, learning experience and exercise. Funny enough, at the time, there was actually another Canadian company based out of Toronto that was already chatting with him. Yeah, it was a media company that was trying to do the exact same thing as him. And all this happened within six days. Me finding out that news happened within six days of us, meet Peter and I, my partner in the business, doing that at back of the napkin analysis in that boardroom. So, so that company in Toronto, just to clarify, they, they were talking to Adblock to license the tech. They weren't doing it independently. They Correct. were like talking to him at the same time. They were a media company. They were doing all sorts of things media related. They've already got all the property, all the brands. Signed yeah, up. yeah. They got they got relationships with brands. They got a lot of things going on. Yeah. So talk talk about uh, you know kicking the plan, but still persevered. I was really really driven to try and win this guy's trust and try and license this product from him. So I came back into the office with Peter, and we sat down. I told him, Pete, we got to jump on this right now. There are other people talking to this guy. Uh, this is the product that I want to use. Here are the reasons we need to put a plan in front of him. We need to get on the phone. We need to bring him down here. We need to fly down there, whatever it is. But we need to be the guys that do it for Ontario and maybe even Quebec. And that was kind of my position. And obviously, we analyzed the whole Skilif Media opportunity. And we said, well, these guys are doing it out west. Why don't we stick to the eastern industry or market or ski, ski area market? As a side note, skiing in Canada is only really happens in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and BC. There's no skiers anywhere else. So that was our focus, East Coast, Ontario, and Quebec. And sure enough, you know, we, we acted quickly and we put a plan together and fast forward, you know, several weeks and we won the exclusive distributorship rights for all of North America, not only Ontario and Quebec, but all of Canada and all of US. Some kid still in school. You were you're still in school at the at the time. Yep. No, so, no, no. That's that's when I graduated. Oh, you graduated. Yeah, so I graduated. Okay. So you fresh out of school three days or three weeks or three months or whatever. Um, how did you do that? Like, how did you? I don't know whether this guy was just using it for leverage and telling you that he had somebody but didn't. But like, how did you and another dude from a real estate company convince these guys to go with you over the company who already had the brand signed up? Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. So great question. And, and it wasn't smoke and mirrors. We actually met with that company and they tried and collaborate with us. Oh, uh, you met with the Toronto correct. company. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So we actually met with them and we wanted to see whether there was some way of us being able to partner together and do this properly. So we explored all avenues, which is why it was actually dragged on. And we took some time to, to finalize this deal with Grant out in New Zealand. You know, it's, it's a great question. I mean, a bit of it is, I mean, a big part of it is hustle. But the reality is what really won us Grant's trust is the proper plan. And over those next weeks and months, we put together what we felt was 
a stellar plan. And to get to that stellar plan, we consulted a lot of experts. So we, great point, Peter and I had no clue about the media industry. We didn't know how to sell advertising. We didn't have experience in that space. You know, he had some good business knowledge based on all the businesses he ran in his real estate business. I was a fresh Ivy grad, like we're both very well educated. We have a good understanding of business models, but we didn't know how to sell advertising. So the very first thing we did, and I, this is a key lesson that I will still repeat to this day, you can't do it all on your own. Surround yourself with people that can help take your business further. And one of our very first partners was a guy by the name of Steve Palver, which his claim to fame is he started Echo Advertising and he was the first boutique uh, creative shop that won a massive account, which was uh, Budweiser and uh, and their their entire business at the time. So he was a guy that knew and understood advertising and media. And Peter actually knew him because they golfed at the same golf club. So he kind of, uh, you know what? I think I know a guy that knows a thing or two about this space. Let me give him a call. Gave him a call. We took him out for beers. At this time, we already had a sample in our hands. We gave him the short spiel, just showed him the product. He wasn't even a skier. We just told him about what it was and some of the features that we felt we should highlight to a media guy that would be beneficial and that we felt would be able to award us media business. And he just said, and this was amazing. I'll never forget this. He goes, guys, I know exactly what this is. I don't need to hear more. How could I be your partner? And we instantly made him a partner. He invested a bit of money with us. So he had some equity in the business and he was the guy, he was our, our third pillar that understood the media industry that would help us open some doors and would essentially be, you know, a de facto mentor, you know, slash advisor on that side of things. So going back and building our plan, when you look at management team, again, this guy fresh out of school, you know, not a lot to, to say, not a lot to write Ivy about. Ivy grad though. Ivy grad yeah. though, very important, but not recognizing New Zealand. Right. But all of a sudden we're building our executive team, we're building our management team. And we got Peter Kobayashi has ran a few businesses, understand business really well. Steve Pulver, you know, very impressive resume as it relates to the media and advertising industry. He's part of our team. So I think that helped a lot, bringing the right people in you know, from an advisor or partner perspective. We also had another guy that joined that in a similar capacity. And was that part of the pitch that you put in front of Adblock at the time? Correct. Got it. So, so you had, you had the media company side covered with this new partner. You got it. Absolutely. We did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you put in money? Did you personally yeah. put in money? Yeah. Peter and I both put in a bit of money. When I say I put in money, the bank of mom and dad. Yeah. It's... I owe a lot of my success to them, a lot of the the proceeds and the dividends that are coming out of the sale of that business since we sold have, uh, have of course, gone back to them. But uh, but yeah, the bank of mom and dad support and finance that. Nice. I'm, I'm wondering how uh, common that story is because like you, I paid for my own school and then with my remaining line of credit, like days before the line of credit was up, I had, I don't know, 30 grand in room took it all out and used it as a down payment to buy my first rental property in nice. London. It was nice. like, however you can get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. So you now get the exclusive license to the North American product. You must have had a bunch of help negotiating that deal. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the heavy lifting was Peter and myself. I mean, we both worked on that. Uh, the entire relationship though was driven by me. 
and the way all communication was done through me. I had the relationship. I mean, this was all phone, Skype, you know, emails. I established a relationship with this guy. Peter let me, you know, really champion it. But really what sold Grant on us was our big picture approach. So we were fighting for initially Ontario and Quebec. And what we failed to appreciate and understand about the media industry is no big brands are going to come and buy your media if you only have little select piece markets. Nobody really cares about just Toronto. Nobody really cares about just Montreal. If I'm allocating budgets for my media spend as a big advertiser, like if you're Rogers, Coke, or Pepsi, you want a national program and you want to spend a ton of money in one swoop. You don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time buying these little media properties. So again, this is something that we learned from Steve Pulver and doing some research in this space and in the media industry. But as a result, what we really need to create was a national network of ski areas. No longer was this in an Ontario, Quebec endeavor. This is like, we need all of Canada in order to attract the big brands. So we went back to Grant and we said, look, we're not, we're not thinking small scale. We're thinking all of Canada, and then we're going to walk into the U.S. and roll this out across North America. We're your North American guys. Got it. Got it. So now you've got, you've got a product. You've got maybe not brands signed up, but you've got access to brands. You just graduated. Now, What's now next? what? Yeah, yeah, where do you go what? from here? Yeah, so you know the product piece is most important because without a product to house the media, well. There's sure. no concept. You can't just put a sticker on safety bars. So it was important to get the right product. You got to get skiers. How are you going to get those chairlifts, right? How are you going to be able to license those those chairlifts? So we... Uh, Sorry, um, before we get to the sales part, talk about the product for a second. So you... I remember you talking about there was... And you, you might be getting there with your sales. But so yeah okay i'm i'm <laughs> I'm jumping ahead because the product is a really important piece it and is it, it was uh it actually is a big differentiator but you're gonna come back to it when you talk about pitching. absolutely yeah, yeah cool yeah. Okay. You're, you're on the right train of thought but I, I think it's important to tell the story of how we walked in and how we had those meetings yeah. and then how we differentiated our positioning i was jumping ahead yeah i'm embarrassed <laughs> no 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 it's it's good because you're thinking on the right path and i love it so we took those meetings, and, and sorry, and to take a step back, uh, we, again, did some research. Good old Uncle Google told us that the best way to talk to as many ski areas as possible face-to-face -face is go to a ski area trade show. Makes sense, right? I mean, they're all, they're there. all there. Get them all at once. Get them all Makes at once. Sense. So perfect timing, because there was one that was happening at Mount Snow in Vermont. And this is at the times about January. So we've secured the exclusive distribution rights for our product in Canada and the US. Now, keep in mind, this was 2008. And we are now in 2009. And we're just having conversations with skiers in their winter season. Okay, so this is busy time for them. This is busy time for them. Now, we weren't anticipating getting this product on that winter. We're thinking the following winter. So that was built into your plan. Exactly. 2009, 2010. This is still preliminary research, you know, getting things off the ground. I mean, we knew it was going to take a while, especially due to the seasonality of the nature. So we walk in into that trade show and again, pitch is a no brainer, right? <laughs> Funny enough, we actually walked in there looking all suited and booted. Think about, you know, a banker, a consultant, ties, suits, dressed to the You just came from Ivy. You got to look the part. Exactly, right? That's what I figured. Everybody does business that way. Right, of course. You're doing business. You got to look business. Now, side lesson here, know your audience. 
So you got to appreciate that the scary industry, they're like khakis, ripped t-shirts, if that. Some of them wear golf shirts, you know, like sandals, if it's the summer. Like it, it, they are just super casual and it's filled, like it skews heavily to old white male, like 50, 60 plus. So just an old boys club. They all know one another. They're all very, very casual, super nice guys. But it's essentially ski bums that started working as lifties at ski areas and then slowly migrated into management positions that are now running the ski areas. So that's the story. So new guys roll in. New guys roll in, suited and booted. I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever turned around so quickly from the doors. Thank God I brought in some spare change of clothes but we shot straight up to our uh to our hotel rooms left the blazers behind you know put on put on some golf shirts and went back down you know we didn't want to look like the, the silly guys that had no idea about anything of the, in the industry so we came back we were, we were dressed a little more appropriately for the audience and we used our pitch did you get a booth or did you just no talk no we were briefcase that's what they called it we were just walking around we didn't get booth space at this time okay again trying to limit our, our financing or limit our, our cash outlays and spending. So we started walking around and, you know, one thing that I was good at at that point was r- sales and really reeling people in full of confidence, young 22 year old Ivy grad, right? Walk up to anybody and start a conversation. And it was fantastic. And it proved to be a great asset in these scenarios because we ended up chatting with about 15 to 20 pretty important senior managers at a variety of skirias all over North America. And we used our pitch. Hey, John, let me talk to you about something. You know, how would you like to make hundreds of thousands of dollars without lifting a finger or spending a dime? It's funny what the right motivation will do to, to go talk to strangers, because I wouldn't say that I, some people are totally comfortable doing it, right? Being at the conference and just randomly walking up to people. Um, I'm not. If I'm honest, I, I I don't love to do it, but when it's your own business, when like deals are on the line, you got line of credit or parents' money or your own money in this, oh, yeah. you better believe you can turn it on for whatever, however long you need. Like you just become a different, it's a different gear when it's your butt on the line. Yeah. And, and to, to add to that, I think there was a great deal of excitement. So you got to appreciate that we thought we're selling the best thing since sliced bread, right? Like we're, you're gonna be so fired up about hearing about this. So our first, so again, as I was mentioning, our first three conversations, here's the response. Oh, Peter, don't even talk to me. Uh, No, no, sorry, I don't have time for this. We were dumbfounded, perplexed. Free money, what do you mean no? What do you mean no? What are you talking about? A Couple of nice guys from Canada finally told us, Guys, what are you doing? Walking in the gauntlet. They're like, this stuff has been done before and has miserably failed. Peter and I both look at each other like, what? <gasps> yeah. Did we, just, did we just get this license for Adblock and, and now we're screwed? You know, I turn white. Like, oh, great. End of our business. You know, even the, the expense of this trip. What a waste. Okay. T- tell me more if you don't mind. Good, sir. Well, there was, there was this product in the 70s and that product in the 80s. I'm like, what's wrong with them? Well, a few things. Number one, they all fell apart. They were shit. They did not work properly. You got to appreciate this. Ski areas, negative 20, out in the elements, 
thermocycling aspects of the environment. It's raining one second, it's snowing the next. I mean, these things are there to stay, right? High sun, high UV exposure. These things need to be designed really, really well to go through all those elements. Number two, you're not the first ski bums to identify a great opportunity and try and make money out of this. Yeah, Pete, a lot of people stared at that safety bar and thought, I can make money off this, let me do it. Well, guess what? They came to us, they promised us a ton of cash, and they never delivered. Huh, wonder why that is. It seems like a great idea that advertisers would actually buy. Our partner, Steve Pulver, who knows advertising and media, claimed that this is amazing. There must be something wrong in the model, in the previous model of, of how they approached this. And number three is we don't want to make this an intrusive media for our audience. They spend a ton of money to come to this spectacular environment and get away from ads. No, we're just, we're, we're opposed to advertising and I don't want some local pizza shop or real estate agent to showcase, you know, his brand. No, like we're, that's not the nature and the brand of our resort, of our ski area. Right. They're thinking like cheesy, local, one-off pizza shop. Exactly. Well, that's what they were used to. Right. That's what they got from these previous entrepreneurs. Right. So how did you, we push a lot, get outside the building and talk to people. You said that you talked to them before at Ski Hills. How did this not come up before? Like, was Peter at this point looking at you like? Yeah. So, so we talked to a very small market. Okay. Right. Because I don't have the ability to go out and travel, you know, all over different markets. So we spoke to local skiers, Blue Mountain and Mount St. Louis Moonstones, local to Toronto. They've never experienced these sort of products. Nobody has ever targeted them with this sort of opportunity. So they were outliers, I would say. But a lot of businesses in the States, this is an American skier at Rachel. So there was a lot of representation from the States, some representation from Can from Canada. But in general, yeah, they... They saw a lot more of this down there. Got it. Okay. So ideas dead. Everybody packed up and went home. What? Yeah. Spoke to a lot more people just to get their feedback, you know, documented all this. How so to... what did you, like, how did those conversations go? Get into the, like, if you can recall, because mm -hmm. these, my students now are going to have to do part of the courses to do customer interviews. Like you need to go out and have a conversation with customers. What questions did you ask when someone says, stupid idea, been there, done that, like turning your back and walking away isn't, it's not helpful. So how did you get to something that you could like, oh, that was the thing that was wrong with it. How'd yeah. you get there? Dig deep, you know, ask a lot of why, a lot of how, how was it done? Why was it done that way? What didn't you like about it? What's important to you? It's also interesting to note that the responses that we received varied based on the role and the title of the person we spoke with. So marketing managers, for example, were very aware of messaging and were very reluctant to showcase cheesy advertising. Whereas operations managers didn't really care about the money or, or the marketing opportunities that were coming. They cared more about the operational integrity of their chairlift. If a chairlift shuts down because one of these products falls apart, I mean, that that is the livelihood of the ski area. So they can't have that. That's right. way more important to them. Right. Interesting. So how did you document, where'd you put it all? How'd... Notes uh, after speaking to every single person. Title, name, Yeah, yeah we got business cards, obviously. I mean, look, everybody in the ski industry is super friendly, 
right? So they would chat with us. They just didn't want to chat with us about our product. Right. But if you're nice about it and you ask some good questions and if you want some feedback and they recognize that you're an entrepreneur, they were generally pretty good about it and they gave us their you know three, four, five minutes. It's also a case from a sales perspective. It is a case of reaching them and, and speaking to them at the right time, right? So obviously if they're engaged in something else or another conversation, you're not reeling them in and trying to have a conversation about a product they don't care about. You know, catch them at lunch, catch them when they're getting a coffee. Uh, hey, could I chat with you about something casually? You know, we, we took a very casual approach to it after a while, after a few of those negative initial interviews or conversations. Regroup. Um, regroup. What do you think of this product? Here's what we're thinking of doing. We think we could generate a ton of money for you guys. You're not going to have to spend anything. What do you think? Yeah. Did you play the young entrepreneur card at all? The as I find it's a balance, right? Sometimes yeah. people want to send emails like almost like a sympathy email. Like I'm a I'm a student entrepreneur. I'm just doing some research. I don't really know if I'm going to start this. We call it the the reluctant hero. Yeah. Um, versus I'm an entrepreneur. You know, this is my this is my venture that I'm working on. It's interesting that you say that because perhaps to my detriment, I, ha I, I never did. I actually took on the approach on the other side of the spectrum where I tried to appear older, more experienced. I carried myself with a lot of confidence and I tried to prove to all my prospects and everybody that I chatted with that I was designed and, and meant for this, this role and this job and you know this idea and that I was going to bring them a lot of money and I was very confident in my ability to do so. So it, it was never down to, oh... You know, I'm, I'm a young entrepreneur. Please help me out. That's what you're getting at. Yeah. But it, no, it was all, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going full. You're a professional. Yeah. You're I'm not, a professional. I'm not just a student trying to figure this out. Like this is legitimate. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you got a bunch of feedback. You recorded it. You got it all written down. Peter's not going to leave you as a partner. He's still invested in this. So where you've got this feedback, where'd you go from there? We went back to our hotel room and drank a lot of beer. <laughs> of, course. <laughs> of course. Of course. At the bar. Yeah. Um, and we really needed to retool. We needed to figure this out because to your earlier point, we know that this concept works. It's worked in New Zealand for seven years at all the ski areas. I mean, much smaller market. There's only seven or eight of them, but it's been working for advertising and for ski areas there. There were 18,000 of these units deployed in Japan, Chile bought product you know like this, this product was working for there is a way there is a way there is a way there is a way we just needed to figure out how to position this properly and sell it well to the skirius that's what really that's what it really came down to so did we give up hell no you know i'm not giving up on this this is my passion you know i gotta keep going i i want to be that ski bum that makes money off selling ad space on chairlift safety bars so somebody borrows money from his parents Gets on his first flight, goes to his first conference, wears his new uh, polyester suit, yeah. looks the part, gets rejected a <laughs> hundred times and decides no. <laughs> Classic uh, tale of an entrepreneur. I like right? it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So you, you got to have thick skin. You got to have the grit. But we, we came back to Toronto and we hit that same boardroom. We said, what do we really have here? And based on all those interviews and all those conversations we had, what is the most important thing to all these different decision makers that would make the call on something like this? So we looked at what we had. We have an incredible product that is extremely well-designed, like extremely. 16,000 of these have been deployed since 2001 without ever coming off. 
with near zero failure rate. Be- best product in the market. Best product in the market. Exclusive access to it in North America. Exactly. All right. Start with what you have. This is what we have. This Got is it. what we have. So then we started looking at why did other entrepreneurs fail? Because the product's there. The antelog, if you will. Why did they, why did it, what did they do that didn't work out? Exactly. So one of the biggest issues that we face, which actually spoke to a few of the pain points or the concerns that these decision makers had, one of them was, it was Joe Schmo, local ski bum at, in Banff, that would drive around Banff and try and sign up the three ski areas that were in the vicinity and sell his rudimentary product to them that A, the design was shit and was gonna fall apart, but B, more importantly, he didn't have national scale. So my previous point and what we learned from the media and advertising world is if you don't have that national scale and a national network to offer Rogers, Coke and Pepsi and Budweiser, they're not gonna care, they're not gonna take you seriously. It's gotta be the the brands that look better on a chairlift versus Joe's Pizza. But that's that's a totally separate piece. Yes, oh, you're okay. absolutely right. What I'm talking about right now is is the money aspect. Got it. So got Joe it. Schmo's Pizza, it's not going to spend. They got three grand to spend a season on on their total advertising right. budget, right? Rogers got millions and millions of dollars to for media buys, and they could probably dedicate two hundred grand to an ad block program. Whereas local real estate agent, not so much. The other aspect, what you just touched on, and you absolutely nailed it, from a creative perspective owners and marketing managers, they don't want Joe Schmo's pizza on there. They don't want the local real estate agent advertising. This isn't, this is why as a tangent and as a sidebar, this is why I truly believe that uh, shelter advertising, bus shelter advertising and bus benches never took off because from an early start, they catered to those real estate agents. That's really all that they could attract. Nobody really thought that that was a great media for national you know, brands. Right. So I, I didn't think of this, uh, we didn't get to it earlier, but you're really, you're building a marketplace here, right? Like you needed, you needed the ski areas to sign up, to give you the inventory. You also needed the advertisers to agree to have their ads on the inventory. So why did you start with ski areas versus advertisers? Great question. And you're right. There are two sets of customers in this business without a network. You got nothing. And the overwhelming response and advice that we received from Steve Pulver and all the other advisors that we've spoken to that we've accumulated over this process in the media industry have told us, if you walk into any major meeting with any major brand and say, yeah, well, in theory, we got this network. They're going to have the first question is, great. What skiers are you on? Well, we're talking with so-and-so and so-and-so. Get out of my office. Right. Those, uh, the meetings with the ski people are probably a little more quote unquote easier, maybe a little more casual. You're right. If you get a meeting with Coke or BMW and you don't yet have those properties secured, you're not going to get a second meeting. Yeah. You, you gotta, you gotta be serious. You gotta be able to walk into those doors and say, this is a physical network in place. Our ad blocks are installed. We're ready to sell this to you. Otherwise you may not get a second chance. Right. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. So on, on that last point, attracting the big national brands to care of that concern, that pain point that marketing managers and owners had. My guests are coming to my Skiria to enjoy their time here. They don't want to see Joe Schmo's pizza. Yep. However, Coke, Rogers, Budweiser, Corona, they could come up with pretty creative tailored content that's specific to the ski industry that will be well received and potentially even enjoyed when you're so bored on the chairlift for seven minutes. 
That's exactly the way we needed to frame this. And that's exactly how Grand had so much success in New Zealand. He went after the national brands that had the big budgets that were able to tailor really, really sharp creative specifically to the ski market. So not, you know, just a logo and, uh, you know, and a simple tagline, really, really cool stuff that spoke to the environment that the guests were in. You're there seven minutes on average on a chairlift inches away. It's not an out-of-home ad. It's like a magazine ad. You got tons of depth of sale. You can literally read through it. Some of the most successful campaigns were riddles or just to put this into perspective, multiple ad blocks would exist on a safety bar. So if it's a quad chair servicing four people, there'd actually be four ad blocks. A very successful campaign was a storyboard, oh, one like building off the other. So, you know, John and Susie and Eric and Pete would sit on the chairlift and they'd say, hey, what's on that one? Interacting they, with one Interacting another. with one another. And how great is that to an advertiser when somebody actually, when, when the audience comes together and communicates and, and enjoys the experience because you got nothing else to do. Right. Okay. So I, I see this unfolding now. So how do you... How do you get your ski hill signed up? Yeah. So we understood what needed to happen. And that was really repositioning our messaging and repositioning our pitch. And this wasn't a case of make hundreds of thousands of dollars without lifting a finger or spending a dime. That was implied. Yeah. If you want to partner with us, you're going to give us money and great. What we really needed to do is communicate the true benefits of our product and our different approach to this concept that has failed in the past. So we came up with another tagline and our pitch was, this is not the same old, same old. This is chairlift media done right. Nice. So you've, you've seen this before, but this is, this is different than the way that you've seen it before. Exactly. And let me tell you about the first time we went back, which there was actually a trade show a month and a half later. We acted quickly. Secondary trade show in February. That one was in January. The first one that we went to secondary one was in February. We went back and the approach that we took was we're going to walk up to every single person and nip this in the bud immediately. And some of those conversations were the same people that we saw, you know, a month and a half earlier. And I'll never, I'll never forget the experience with these two, with an owner and a director of operations or a VP of operations at, at Ascaria. Walked up to them and, and we said, we started the conversation by, forget the name, but let's just call him John. John, I'm going to talk to you about something today that you definitely don't want to hear about. As soon as you say that, they're kind of intrigued. Don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about pink elephants. Thinking about pink elephants. So immediately, curiosity. Okay. And then you whip out Adblock. This is a chairlift advertising device. Oh, immediately, right? Man, like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm like, I know. I know you don't. And I recognize that you had really bad experiences with past failed attempts. And I recognize that these are the pain points that you've experienced. We'll reiterate them because we've had multiple discussions and we understand what they went through. And then we tell them about Adblock. Here's why Adblock's great. It's been, it's been designed in New Zealand. It's existed on chairs for the last nine years, whatever it was at the time. 36,000 of these are deployed all over the world, including Japan, Chile, New Zealand, and Australia. We have testimonials and best practices this thick, as thick as a 1,000 page book, how to do this properly in North America. We have a great product partner. Best part about it is we have a national approach where we're gonna attract big national brands that are gonna be able to spend good money and create and deliver really good creative content 
to your to your guests. We packaged it all up really, really nicely. And over the course of the conversation, as we were pitching, you could see their expressions change. You could see they were buying into this. It was it was amazing. It like talk about a 180. You know, like we practically had people give me a call when you guys are back in Toronto. I'm really interested in this. What really helped, and this is just a side piece, side uh, side note, but we for the for the operations managers that were mainly interested in its durability and performance, we actually created this device where we'd put the ad block on a fake safety bar, and uh, you know we brought it out and set it up, and anybody that would come by, we called it the ad block challenge. We'd give them a hammer. And we'd let them go at it in the trade show and try and break the thing. And nobody could. It was really that well designed. Nobody could break it. So, I mean, talk about, you know, a way to get through to them. Like, after they did that, like, okay, yeah, I, I believe in it. Saw it for themselves firsthand. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So that was the beginning of getting them. Yeah. Our, our repositioning really worked. Um, we knew that we had the right message. From then on, it was, it was a big, you know, follow-up initiative with the people that we've already met that we chatted with that we knew we wanted to work with and it was a case of good salesmanship so we don't have the budget to fly around everywhere and you know try and take meetings i'm a big believer of being novel and doing shipping things to people like a letter physical letter old school things yeah physical old yeah. school things so this wasn't like you we read a lot about growth of you know books like predictable revenue talk about the different functions in sales so your first thought wasn't okay, now I need to go hire a junior person to cold call 30 ski resorts. You didn't do that. You didn't take the shotgun approach. You went pretty targeted. Truthfully, I would have been that guy. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And yeah, and it's a very good point. One of the other strategies that we've identified very early on was we did not need, so the Canadian market, which we started with, we, we didn't have plans to go into the States immediately. We wanted to roll this out in Canada and have a proven model that we could replicate in the States. That was our strategy. There were 200 scariest total, actually to be exact, 188 in Canada that could technically do business with us. But we didn't need all of them. You know, Mansfield or the local single skier chairlift that only attracts 15,000 skier visits a year probably doesn't make sense for a Rogers or Pepsi. But... Blue Mountain, Mount St. Louis, Tremblant, Whistler. So those profiles, you know, that are that are the big players, the big hubs that attract audiences from the major urban centers where big brands want to target and want to spend money on, those were in our target audience. And there was only really 30 of them. Got it. So you went using more modern terms, super ABM style. You identified with laser focus the 30 that you needed. What did you do then? Like you had find names, emails, addresses. What'd you do? Yeah. So in this day and age, it's actually really easy to get contact information. You know, you do a search on Google or we were part of these associations now. We paid membership dues. So we had directories of all these people. We you probably talked to a bunch of them already. Talked to a bunch yeah. of them already. So we've identified the ones that we need to speak with. This was a, a multi-contact approach. So it wasn't just speaking to the marketing guy. It wasn't just speaking to the operations guy. Everybody, it was an enterprise-based sell. Everybody within the organization, you know, needed needed some sort of buy-in. Um, this wasn't one guy making the decision. So, we, uh, yeah, it's it's we didn't cold call them, we didn't email them. We decided to kind of go old school. We sent them these pretty impressive. We call them pizza boxes. We delivered and shipped out our product 
as a sample. There's actually three samples included in the package. One of them was affixed to kind of a fake bar that was supposed to resemble a safety bar. And the other one was completely broken apart, like the pieces, the individual pieces of it, so somebody could see exactly how it's put together. And some lenses that had the actual ads printed on them. And in the lenses, there were two strategies. One of them was display a self-promo message. So Hey, marketing guy, look how exciting this is. Now you could promote your ski school, your restaurants on site, you know, all the vertically integrated services that you're responsible for. And then the other strategy was, yeah, look at this BMW ad. We are going to attract the big players. So it was very, and of course, expensive. You know what? Every package after all said and done probably costs us with shipping 60, 70 bucks. Okay. So one prospect that's expensive. It was, yeah. It, it's not cheap. It's not a junior person hitting the phones. It's uh, that's expensive. But we had thirty targets, right? Super focused. Guess what our response rate on that was? What's the response rate on email for, first? Email. I mean, uh, just a general response rate. If if you're going to cold call somebody, your response rate on email is what nowadays 10, 10, like 15 percent, maybe, maybe yeah. if it's incredible and yeah. super focused, and you've yeah. maybe been to the ski resort and like have a connect. Maybe exactly sub six percent, sub five yeah, sure, percent. Sure. Yeah. So we our response rate. I mean, if they wouldn't call us, let's just say we reach one hundred percent of those targets. Wow. In yeah. some fashion, In some you fashion. had a, conver- a qualified conversation with them. Correct. Wow. So part of it was, as soon as we called, these people took our call and said, first of all, thank you. That was one of the most impressive direct marketing pieces I've ever received. And number two, because of our messaging and the way we framed it and what we presented them, the product was exciting. It looked great. And then the way that we positioned things, they took our call and said, this is great. Worth a conversation. Worth a conversation. Yeah. So of those ski areas, um, you know, the ones that were interested you know, great discussions, great discussions. And phone, did you go see him in person? What'd you do? Phone, all phone. phone. We had to keep the budgets down, lean startup. Sure. So first season then of the 30 or so that you targeted how many signed up? So we signed, it's interesting. We use a few different metrics, but we had, we had about three to four months to get this off the ground because by the time we got everything together and it was now summertime we needed to get this in time, get these get these agreements in place with the ski areas to go out to market, sell the advertising for that first season and install this stuff. Like that, that was an endeavor in and of itself. So we call it, this was like March, April, where we began the process right at the tail end of most ski areas end of their season. And we needed to get everything buttoned up by, call it August, September. We signed 16 of the top 25 ski areas within those three to four months. Crazy. That's yeah. ridiculous. And that's just to put this into perspective, that's 16, maybe not all of them. We, we didn't have those conversations at those trade shows, but in general, from our initial outreach and discussion, the research that we gather, that's, I'm never going to work with you to, I have now signed a contract and I'm a partner. Wow. Through literally listening, feedback, iterating, changing the messaging, emphasizing, like the product that you showed them from day one was the same product. You just needed to change the message, change the wrapper, change the positioning. That's incredible. That's awesome. Thank you. That's awesome, man. Congrats. So, um, well, fast forward a little bit, cause I want to start, uh, wrapping up. I have a couple of questions I want to finish off with. Um, but so where is it now? I mean, great early traction, good story to get the first couple fast forward, you know, even today, where's Adblock today? So Adblock about two to three years ago now, and I'm kind of losing track of time, but we, we decided to sell the business. 
for a number of reasons. I'll just touch on them quickly right now. We were always a one media company and we could not compete in the marketplace. We found a really great suitor that played in a similar space as us in the out-of-home sector that could take our media, bundle it with their basket of goods and basically absorb our business and take it to the next level. And I think the key lesson here is in an entrepreneur's life, there, there always comes a time when somebody could take the business and the concept uh, to the next level. And that really wasn't me. I was the guy with the idea. I was the brains and hustles and putting all the pieces together and getting it off the ground. But to take it to that next level really required a new skill set and a new company. Okay. That's when we decided to sell. Got it. But you ended up selling the company? Yeah, we ended up selling the company. It's still, I mean, the product still exists. It's under uh, a business now known as Rec Media, Recreation Media. Interestingly enough, we kind of parceled the business, and this is, this is a separate podcast, but we, Grant Metzen, our product partner, Three years into the business, we were so successful with Adblock that we did a reverse takeover of his business and completely acquired the global distribution rights for the product itself. We then sold the product on a license basis to other markets, mainly in Europe, and we parceled that business and we made it completely separate. So there was Adblock Media, which was responsible for media sales and the media network selling to advertisers and the global Adblock Global, which was the product business selling product to entrepreneurs like us in other markets, to ski areas, to whoever would buy it. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And which one, which one did you sell? So uh, we sold the media, the media portion to Rec Media. And now this is a very interesting structure of ownership, but Rec is a minority partner in the global business as well. So we've retained an equity stake in the global business. They are a partner of ours in the global business, but we are technically doing that together. Got it. Got it. What a cool story. It, something I didn't, I didn't get to that I think is important just to touch on quickly. And then I want to wrap up here. How did you get to setting the culture that you wanted I asked that because you're, uh, we've known each other for a while. You're a certain type of guy that I get along with really well. How did you go about attracting types of people that would get along with you? And how were you or not maybe intentional about the culture that you created there? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Be yourself, you know, and, and believe and resonate the values that are true and that are important to you. You know, when, when we started building up our company and attracting employees, I wanted to show everyone, I don't want to put on a front. So my employees knew exactly the type of guy I was very passionate about skiing and snowboarding, love to have a good time. There wasn't, there's was no bullshit, you know, air everything out in the office. If you needed to, we we're very open. We were a small tight team. We had five employees max at a certain point. So, you know, it's not like there was several layers, you know, of organization, but yeah, just, just do the things that you wanted to do. And you know, I, I just recall it's the story that, that we shared, you know, before we got on here, a huge fan of soccer and World Cup. And one year, and this is a bit of a entertainment strategy that we adopted. Naturally, in the sales industry, you have to entertain, you know, anybody and everybody. And media personnel are very used to this. So what we wanted to do when, when was this? I think this was in Brazil. All the games were being played. The World Cup games were being played during, you know, our work time zone. So we organized what we called the traveling office and we grabbed all our employees at the time and brought them to a bar and we created a cool story around it. like CTV interviewed us about it because they thought it was clever. A lot of people, you know, in offices are sneaking out of the, their, you know, their, their workplace to try and catch the games. Not us. We brought all our stuff to the office. Wi-Fi was stable and we actually invited all our customers to do the same. Like, Hey, if you need to work and uh, you want to catch the game, 
do so the same way that we are. And it was awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Being authentic and uh, bringing that self to work is just so, so important. Cool. I want to wrap up with a couple that I ask all of our guests here. So where do you do your best thinking? <laughs> Probably on the chairlift. <laughs> on the chairlift still. Yeah, I do, especially when I ski or snowboard alone. Uh, it's incredible what you can achieve on the on the chairlift. I'm just Zen mode, you know, alone with my thoughts. You know, it's it's fantastic. I also do really really good thinking in the pool. I do a lot of swimming. I'm into triathlon, so I do a lot of training you know, during the week, and it's very therapeutic for me. No music, pedaling in the pool, trying to get laps in. Some great thinking and meditation goes in there. No phone. You can't like sneak out to check your phone. Exactly. That's great. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? So if you could look back to Pete Mahalik in HBA 2, fourth-year university, you're just about to embark on Adblock, what, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. Wow, there's so many. We need another hour. The big one is trust your instinct. There was a point in Adblock's life where we were on top of the world and we secured some really, really good clients. And I thought, is it too early to sell? This is like a really good opportunity. We've driven so much value. It's been exponential. And I thought to myself, now's the right time to sell. And it kind of hurt us in the end because we saw a bit of a dip in sales and company took a different direction. And I would have really liked to sell at that point. You know, I obviously stretched it out and had a great ride with the business, but I think that we would have been able to achieve a greater return for us and our investors if we were to sell at that point. Yeah, so trust your gut. Trust your gut for sure. Uh, is there anything you wished you would have learned sooner, either when you're in school or something that you wish you would have learned before you started your yeah. entrepreneurial journey? So my my approach to sales, and, and I think sales is such a crucial skill set for any entrepreneur to have, whether you're selling yourself, your idea, it's just so important in establishing and developing a business. And my approach to, and I'm lucky, I'm, I'm a personable, very social guy, you know, that gets along with almost everyone. And my approach historically to sales has always been, it's an art. You know, I'm just going to go and get along with everyone and, and sell my stuff. And it's worked out pretty well for me. But what I didn't have an appreciation for until probably in the last three years was the science behind sale, selling and, and sales in general. And, and I think there's a great deal of science that goes into selling and knowing that I think would have taken our business a lot further earlier on. Cool. And then finally, uh, if there's one thing that you are best at or your superpower, what would that be? Getting shit done. I got to say. GSD. 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 It's actually a term that you coined, but, uh, you know, it's it's the classic persona and and the the characteristics of an entrepreneur. If something needs to be done, I don't wait around or delegate if I can get it done myself. Whether it's a marketing video that needs to be put together for a prospect or a client, you know, or installing ten thousand ad blocks, you know, get it done. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of my approach to everything. Potentially to my detriment, some of the things I do should be outsourced. But again, I'm a very hands-on operator and. More often than not, it puts me in a really good position. Yeah, I've seen that in working with you for, we worked together for three years, three years, three, yeah. four years. And I think summarizing it, you'd say like done is better than perfect. You know, like, could it be done meticulously? Maybe, but like, would it have ever even gotten done or would it be done now? No. So screw it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done to a point where I'm happy with it and we're going to ship it. And you've been really, you've been really good at that. Thanks. Yeah. 
this has been great. I'm glad we were able to finally get the story of Adblock down recorded for history. This is like your time capsule for a long time. No, it's, it's, I really enjoyed this. Uh, it's also a great walk down memory lane for me, you know, such good times, such a great experience and great part of my life. So I really appreciate you bringing me out here and I had a good time. This started when we were, we were in, we, we flew, so was it Denver? Yeah. We, we flew somewhere. Yeah, we were yeah. in the back of an Uber together and yeah, you yeah. started telling me the story and I knew, I knew it roughly, but didn't know the full thing. And when we got into the details, it was like, Ooh, this would make a good story. One back day. of a cab. Back of a good cab. stories come up. The back of a cab. <laughs> cool. Hey man, I appreciate having you here. Thanks for making the trip in and uh, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.